it's really easy for us to accept that other people have biases. Other people make investing mistakes. It's just really hard for ourselves and to think that we need help there. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and this is episode 25. Investors face many challenges on the road to financial success, and in recent years, we've come to understand that one of the biggest obstacles is our own behavior. As a species, humans just haven't evolved many of the traits that are necessary to be a good investor, such as the ability to plan for the long term and the humility to recognize when we need help. Now, in the last decade or so, researchers in behavioral finance have shed a lot of light on how we make investing decisions, and much of it just isn't very flattering. But as my guest on this podcast explains, it's neither accurate nor helpful to think of humans as poor decision makers. In fact, our brains have evolved some extremely effective shortcuts for making good decisions when we don't have complete information, and these serve us well in many contexts. The problem is just we sometimes apply these shortcuts in situations when they're not very useful, and that can lead us to make investing decisions that are less than optimal. Dr. Stephen Wendell is the head of behavioral science at Morningstar, where he heads up a research initiative called the Investor Success Project. Since its creation in 2018, Wendell and his colleagues have published 10 white papers on the human factors that contribute to investor success, such as behavioral challenges, social pressures, and the decision-making biases that we all share. We'll discuss some of this original research in our interview, and I'll post links to the specific papers on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com, in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Wendell's specialty is behavioral change, that is, how we can help people close the gap between what they say they want to achieve and what they actually do. We discuss this concept as it applies to saving and investing, and we consider ways that the financial industry can create products and processes that can help. My special guest today on the podcast is Dr. Stephen Wendell, head of behavioral science at Morningstar, who joins me from Chicago. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Now, um, just as an introduction, in one of your Morningstar columns, you wrote something that I thought was very interesting. And I'll just quote here from the article. You said that the research in behavioral finance can give the impression that investors are simply foolish and should not be trusted with their money. As a behavioral scientist, I want to dispel that view. So why is it a dangerous idea that, uh, you know, people are just innately poor with money decisions? Sure. Well, I think there are two problems with that view. One is the us versus them. It's not that uh, investors are foolish and we in the industry are on high, tremendously intelligent and just need to tell people what to do, but rather we all suffer from particular shortcomings. That, that, that's problem number one. Problem number two is what do those shortcomings mean? We tend to think of our biases in a negative sense of, wow, people look at what other people do and use that as a cue for, for themselves, right? Hurting behavior. But that's, that's really not what's going on. It's rather that we have a fundamental limitation in our minds that we can't consider all possible options, can't consider all possible data. And our minds make very, very smart shortcuts in other words, look at what other people are doing when you can't think when you can't think it through in detail. And if we try to stop these smart shortcuts, we're going to stop their benefit, right? They help us in many, many ways. And so that's the other reason why it's why I think it's dangerous to think about our biases and the challenges that investors face as as foolishness. 
They are very, very smart shortcuts, often applied in the wrong context. Right now, last year, Morningstar launched what uh, you're calling the Investor Success Project. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what you hope it will achieve, and then we're going to get into some specific uh, research that you've done. Sure. So the Investor Success Project brings together various strands of research within Morningstar to study the obstacles that investors face above and beyond the markets. So Morningstar, of course, is well known for studying investments and providing unbiased information and research. Um, Various pockets of the company have long also looked at personal finance issues, for example, the expertise of Christine Benz, or retirement issues, David Blanchett. The Investor Success Project brings that together, um, the existing research, and applies uh, a new lens to say systematically what are the problems that investors face above and beyond performance and investment information, and how can Morningstar help? And so we've done uh, nine different uh, research studies within 2018, um, original original research, all published on our website for free to help um, well broaden the conversation and see what else what else should we be doing to help investors. All right, and I should say that we'll uh, I'll include a link to uh, the white papers on uh, on my blog uh, in the show notes for this podcast. Um, but let's jump in to talk about uh, the first one, which is one that I believe that you authored yourself. Some of the others were uh, written by some of your colleagues. Um, this one is called "Easing the Retirement Crisis," and right at the beginning, you know, you indicate that nearly half of all Americans have saved nothing for retirement, and of those who have some savings in their workplace plans. The median account size is just $10,000. So clearly there's a problem. I don't imagine it's fundamentally different in Canada. Um, so maybe you can just introduce this idea you know, the, of the scope of the problem. Are we going to see you know, in 15 to 20 years, maybe we're already seeing it now, people just running out of money in retirement? Yes, I, I think that is, that is what we see. And, and the real challenge is what does that mean? So as a society, um, there was no retirement 150 years ago, except for a very, very narrow portion of the population. But as a, as a society in the U.S. and actually before, before the U.S., um, Germany and a variety of other countries decided that that's, that's not okay. We want people to have a comfortable end of work period. And now we set this expectation, push people to save provide public savings vehicles, right? So public and private savings in order to help people have a comfortable retirement. And while there's there's disagreement in the field on the exact size of the retirement savings gap, um, as as we call it, the predominant view in the research, the vast majority of the, of the research papers, including mine, show there's a very significant gap and a large portion of Americans, and as we see this in other countries as well, simply aren't going to have this comfortable retirement. Now, some people respond to that and say, hey, there never was a comfortable retirement. People will just adapt. And that's true, but we've decided that they shouldn't have to. We decided that, 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 that retirees should not have a severe drop in their standard of living, which is what we see, uh, what we see many Americans are on track for, unfortunately. Now, in your research, you looked at eight specific changes that might affect uh, retirement outcomes for different people. Now, I'm not going to ask you to <laughs> list all of them, but just to elaborate on the idea, these included things like you could delay retirement, you could reduce your spending in retirement, you could save more, et cetera. So tell me about some of the factors you looked at, and then we'll look at some of the conclusions about which ones turned out to be the most effective at improving retirement outcomes, because I think people will find this surprising. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So we looked at what are the most commonly discussed 
techniques, changes in the industry to help people prepare for retirement. And you mentioned some of them, like delaying retirement, contributing more, um, cutting one standard living now so that you, you don't have that expectation in the future and you can save more, et cetera. And what we found is that, well, in the finance industry, we often focus on, well, alpha, asset allocation, and fees. And these are important things for people who have saved. But at least in the US, most people, most people simply have not saved enough that their personal investing strategy is going to make nearly as much of a difference of, as simply saving more. That's the, that's the headline result. Um, and it's, it's sadly not a surprising one when we step back, from the, step back from the details of the analysis. When you have so few Americans saving and what we are saving is, 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 is so slight in many cases, well, the details of how, the, how our meager savings are invested, they just don't matter that much, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess that the, the key message here is that, you know, as you said, it's not that investment results or fees or asset allocation are unimportant. It's just that they're only important after you get all of the other factors right. Exactly, exactly. It's, I wish we had that problem for most Americans. So, you know, this speaks to, I, I think it's interesting because I've been advocating, you know, for investors for a long time now. And 10 years ago, I think that there was a real significant lack of awareness about investment fees. Uh, it was not that uncommon for investors to say, for example, my advisor doesn't charge any fees just because they don't <laughs> yes. see them, right? Um, I don't see that very much anymore, which is a great thing. Uh, but it is interesting that I have seen in some ways the pendulum has swung the other way and that there are a lot of people who are now so hyper-focused on fees. Uh, and I'm talking about reducing their portfolio costs by you know five to 10 basis points. I'm not talking about huge fundamental shifts. And it's difficult sometimes to get across the message that it's not that that's not important, but before you devote all of your energy to shaving five basis points off your portfolio costs, you want to be asking yourself, are you doing all of the other things that are important? And you talked about a few of them in the paper, but let's talk a little bit about the subtleties here because you know it's a little discouraging to say to somebody, well, the problem is you need to save twice as much or you need to work 10 years longer than you were planning. But you describe in the paper that small changes in a number of those areas can multiply and become quite impactful if you if you get a lot of those small steps correct. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. I mean, sadly the you can think of the analysis in two steps. One is where are people going right now? And it is frankly quite dire. But the other side is, as you mentioned, that doesn't mean it has to be that way. If if someone were only going to do one thing, like contributing more to retirement or delaying retirement, well, then, then across the American society, it would have to be a very significant change for most Americans to be okay. But if we take combined steps, so contributing, for example, um, a minimum of 6% of one's income, which is, which is often the default right now in the US, what people are put into, um, and uh, retiring at age 67, that, that helps about 75% of Americans be okay, right? Not, not to live lavishly, but to have a comfortable, uh, to have a comfortable retirement without the significant shock of, of a decreased standard of living. So two small changes put together are much better than doing a radical change in, in just one area. So it is possible to, to change this dire situation. 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons why people, you know, don't look to things like, you know, contribution rates and retirement age as the big drivers is because it's easier to lay the responsibility somewhere else rather than on yourselves. But I don't really look at it that way. I, I don't know what your thoughts on this. I, I feel it's more liberating. Like to me, if my retirement depended on the whims of the market, that to me is very disempowering. Whereas if somebody, a planner or somebody was to say to me, you know what? Retirement is within your control, right? You can't control every factor, but you can control how much you save and how long you work. And, you know, that to me is a little bit more liberating than, you know, expecting the markets to do all the heavy lifting. I think it can be, but I think we also should recognize that many Americans, and I, and I believe the same is the same for, such as the same for Canada, are living very close to the line, that there's just very little gap between their current spending and how much they're earning. And that's a real challenge. So even, even increasing contributions by a bit can, can feel like a tremendous lift on its own. And so that's why in the behavioral community, we look for techniques that can make that process easier. It's not empowering to know that it's in your control if you think you're going to fail. And that, I think, is what, is what so many people face. Like, how can I possibly take another $500, $1,000, et cetera, out and, and put it off for, for retirement. Well, that's why we have other techniques, right? We have the techniques of auto-escalation. We have the techniques of visualizing the future. We have techniques of, of automatic transfers from paychecks, even outside of, of, uh, outside of one's retirement plan, et cetera. And that's, I think, is the combination of those two. The fact that you can control it, right, and techniques to, actually, to make that burden lighter. That, that, that I think, is quite, is quite empowering. Yeah, a lot of your other work has focused on this idea, like how do you turn, you know, the gap between the way we want to act and the way we actually act, yes. and how do we bridge that gap? How do we make it easier for people, you know, to use, if you will, to kind of harness their behavioral foibles in a positive way, right? For example, if we are people who just tend to fall into the status quo, then we automate your savings. And then we're using that status quo bias in a positive way. Are, are there some other techniques? Yeah, I mean, there, 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 there are quite a few. So one of them is this, I mentioned this, that we, we look to see what other people are doing when we're unsure, right? We do that when we're walking in a new town and we see, uh, we go to a restaurant, we see if there are lots of other people there, right? That's a simple social cue. Well, that can work to our advantage as well. If we see that other people are saving, if we see that other people are preparing for the future, that has proven to be a uh, potentially powerful intervention to help people save, right? Using those shortcuts to our advantage. Um, there are also ways to, to slow us down when we're going to make a when we may make a, um, a hasty decision. And this is an investing context where often we are focused on why, for example. We've had, we've had some recent volatility in, uh, in, in the markets. Uh, why someone might want to sell right now? Well, I need to get out. I, th I fear that things are going to drop further. Well, one of the biases that comes to play is confirmation bias. We start seeing lots of other – we see lots of reasons of why we should sell right now. Well, you can use confirmation bias to your advantage by saying, okay, well, this is what I want to do. Now, let me write down the five reasons why if I'm buying, someone else is selling and – and vice versa, right? If I'm selling, why someone else is buying, and them being a fool isn't one of them. And what that does is it turns, the, it, it now centers your attention on all of the opposite side, 
right, on why the other why the other person is doing it, and our confirmation bias will start finding lots of stories and lots of data about why that's the case. So there are lots of ways that we can work with our biases, from the auto enrollment to the peer comparisons, this 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 social signal, to confirmation bias. Now, one of the challenges of all of these is that you know the behavioral biases that we all share are not necessarily intuitive. They're not obvious. Most of us are unaware that we have them. Yeah. And so one of the important roles that an advisor can play is this kind of behavioral coaching. So this segues into a discussion of another uh, paper um, that you did, which is called The Value of Advice. And the interesting thing about this paper is that it really highlights the difference between what investors value from an advisor and what the advisors think that the investors value. You know, you'd think that there would be some uh, overlap here, and there's a little bit, um, but there is a pretty big disconnect. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, if you're a client of an advisor, you know, what are the things that you think your advisor should provide and what things, you know, in, in the list of, of variables that you looked at are generally underappreciated by individual investors? Sure, sure. So investors, not surprisingly, want help believe that their advisor should help them reach their financial goals. They want to make sure that their advisor has the relevant skills and knowledge, and then they can communicate this, and that they can, well, many, many investors have been trained to think of investing as maximizing returns. So those are the top four, for example, in our, in our study. And some of those are in common with what advisors see. So helping reach goals, right? So that that is um, uh, that's second in our advisor list. In other words, the advisor understanding of what investors are looking for. The having relevant skills and knowledge, that's on the list. It's about five, et cetera. The communicating, that's also on there. Where there's a really big gap points to what you were just talking about, which is the behavioral coaching. We tried a variety of different ways of talking about it with investors. Um, and no matter what we said, it ranked last to almost last, this, this idea of helping me stay in control of my emotions, helping me stay the course, helping me not do rash actions that might hurt me. It's, it's really easy for us to accept that other people have biases. Other people make investing mistakes. It's just really hard for ourselves and to think that we need help there. And so that's, that's a real problem. Now, advisors rated this more highly. It's not certainly not the top of their list, but they thought investors did value this. That's a real challenge because many studies, uh, Russ Kennel's at Morningstar, um, there's a Vanguard study, there's uh, Merrill Lynch has a nice summary of all of these. What we see time and time again is that behavioral coaching is likely the single most important thing that advisors do to help their clients. More important than uh, than rebalancing, more important than asset allocation, more important than stock picking, more important than tax consequences, et cetera. It's behavioral coaching, and yet their clients don't see that. That's a real challenge. So why don't they see it? Is it just overconfidence? Is it just the human tendency? You know, as I think, as you put it, was we understand that other people have emotional and behavioral biases, but we don't. I mean, I think there's there's certainly more work to be done here. I'll, I'll be frank, but that's our belief walking in the door. Yes, that it's that it's just really uncomfortable to think that you need help in this way. But yet, we do have examples in other parts of our lives where we found we can feel comfortable doing this, right? So in a gym, there are personal trainers. They certainly don't get all of the gym goers, but there are a segment of people who say, look, I need help. I need support to do this, right? Um, taxes, 
there's a broader understanding, at least in American society, that taxes are horribly complex and you need somebody else to help you with them, right? Dentistry, sure, you might be able to do it yourself, but eh, you probably want somebody else to. We haven't gotten to that place yet with investing and especially with the keeping keeping on the on the path over time yet. And I think there's education there. I think as an industry, we have we've hurt ourselves, to be frank. For so long we've we've competed, right? Asset managers have competed against each other saying, we have the best alpha, we have the best fund. Well, all that does is focus people's attention on beating a benchmark, which statistically is not possible across the entire industry. And so we've set up a situation where people are focused on the wrong thing and we're paying the price. Well, that's a great point because it's very easy to blame the victim here and to say that it's investors' fault that they don't realize that you know their behavior um, is a bigger factor than, say, an incremental increase in investment returns because right. money managers, advisors have been promoting themselves you know, for their supposed ability to deliver market-beating returns forever. And so we shouldn't be surprised if investors have taken that message to heart. Exactly. That's, that's how so many investors have been brought into the field of focusing on performance. It's, we should certainly always look for performance and not, and not be satisfied with a, a, with a poorly run fund or one that's off its uh, purpose. But they can't, that can't be it. That can't be the only thing. And I think the move to passive is, is helping. Let's talk about a different paper now. This one uh, is called uh, Expensive Choice. Um, this one sort of parallels uh, an idea or a book that came out a few years ago called The Paradox of Choice, which I thought was a fascinating look at this idea that most of us believe that we want a lot of options, right? That more choice is better. But the research is now very compelling uh, to demonstrate that more options often leads to worse decisions. And more than that, it leads to discontent with those decisions. So yes. uh, to introduce this paper, maybe you can explain a little bit about the methodology that was used where investors were asked to choose between three different index ETFs. Sure. Yeah. So we took um, three, uh, three ETFs that were each tracking the, tracking the market, right? In this case, the, the S&P 500. We changed their names. We randomly assigned those names just to make sure there was no difference, randomly assigned the performance. So we took real histories of actual funds and their actual expense ratios. Um, and we found, well, first of all, there are um, otherwise identical ETFs that cost a whole lot more than the others um, to the order of 10x uh, other, 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 other ETFs. And we put those in front of investors and said, okay, uh, we randomly selected uh, investors, put them into a variety of different uh, conditions, right? Different ways of picking investments. In one version, we said, okay, you have you have a certain amount of money. I think it's ten thousand dollars, and you can choose among these three uh, these three ETFs. They're all doing the same thing. How would you like to invest your money, right? And what we found is that well, fourteen percent put all of their money in the cheapest option. Right. In this case, they were uh, four basis points, nine basis points, and 40 basis points. In another version where we randomly selected an otherwise identical group of people, we said, okay, you can only put your money in one fund. You have to make the hard choice. You can't spread it out. And there, 47% of people put it all in the cheapest option. In other words, when attention was focused and you couldn't 
say, well, I don't know, maybe maybe these look alike, but they're not exactly alike, I'm not sure. Um, and you kind of spread things out and you pay the price for it. When really forced to pay attention, people got it. They got the, the they, they really focused on those, on those fees. So before we talk about some of the reasons why people always didn't choose the optimal choice, I feel like I have to say here, like, I appreciate that when you ask them to focus on picking only one fund, you know, they made the correct choice 47% of the time versus 14% of the time before. But it's still less than half of the people when asked, which of (laughs) the following three identical funds would you choose? The only difference is cost and less than half of them picked the obvious answer. What's going on here? What we see in the in the research and ours and others in the field is that our understanding of investing just isn't the same as 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 many everyday investors. That we look at three otherwise identical um, S and P trackers and say, okay, those are the same thing. I should really look at fees, right? Because the performance isn't going to make a difference. And we don't think that's the case for many people. Instead, they have other jobs. They have other things that they pay attention to, and they don't have as much of a nuanced understanding of the details of investing. And so what is a really smart thing to do if you don't know um, which option to choose? Well, you hedge your bets. So in a state of not knowing, it's actually a very reasonable thing to say, okay, these look the same, but maybe I'm getting something wrong here. I don't want to risk it. Let me just put some money in each. So that's what we believe is going on. We call that naive diversification, right? That it is um, a person is trying to diversify and avoid some risk. In this case, the unknown. Um, but it's 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 not a it's not a well informed implementation of diversification. Does that does that make sense? It does. And actually, this is it's really interesting because this is kind of what we talked about at the top of the conversation. This idea that you know the fact that we have these behavioral biases or you know, shortcuts for making decisions, on the surface, they can sound irrational and even, you know, just like that's just a dumb decision, right? But if you scratch the surface or if you look at it the way you just explained it, it actually makes perfect sense. As you said, if you don't know what the correct answer is, why would you go 100% into one of those three choices? It would be a lot safer in many other contexts in life to spread your bets out across all three of them more or less equally. It's much less likely that you're going to get, you know, a a very poor result. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It is a very smart shortcut just applied in the wrong context. I think if we can't, if we can't empathize with investors, if we can't see ourselves making the same mistake, then I think it's much less likely we'll be able to help people unless we realize that we ourselves have the same challenges, right? And that, hey, these, these aren't dumb things. These are actually quite smart. And there's just this problem of implementation. Then I think it's very hard for us to really connect with folks and find what's a, what's a wise way to work around these problems. Yeah, that's a great sort of mantra as an advisor too, or you know, as an investor advocate is like, let's not start from the premise that investors are fools and they're not smart enough to do any of this stuff on their own. So they have to listen to what we tell them to do and exactly. you know, be a little bit more honest and a little bit more humble and say, look, this stuff is hard. We all make these mistakes. I've definitely heard a lot of uh, behavioral uh, finance experts admit quite openly they've made many money mistakes, you know, on their own. Oh, yeah. And they study this stuff every day. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do myself, everybody in this in the field does. Absolutely. 
And also it's, it's important to remember that advisors are just as much human as anybody else, right? So advisors have an additional training, an additional knowledge and work in the field. But in the end, when we're tired, when we're busy, when we're doing other things, we're always, we're always going to fall back on our shortcuts. And sometimes they're very smart shortcuts and sometimes they're very smart shortcuts in the wrong context. Yeah, to expand a little on this idea of naive diversification, this is something that I have seen with a lot of investors. Uh, over the years, uh, investment products have become more and more diversified. In other words, it's easier to build a balanced portfolio now with a smaller number of products. And what I have seen consistently is people resisting that simplicity, right? So it's now in Canada, last year we had uh, all of the major ETF providers came out with uh, one fund portfolio. So these are an ETF that includes bonds, Canadian stocks, global stocks, all in one package. Couldn't be easier, super cheap. People will look at them and I frequently get emails saying, well, what if I buy one from Vanguard and one from iShares? You know, that gives me more diversification. I said, well, they have the same underlying holdings, right? But I think it's this idea that that seems too simple, right? One fund is not diversified. Two funds is more diversified, even if what's under the hood is the same in both cases. Exactly. So I might take that example and let's do it instead of investing, let's do it as insurance. Let's say that you really, you know, you, you wanted to care for your family and you bought a policy, right? And then you bought another policy for about the same amount and together it's what you need for your family to be okay after your passing. Would we consider that a bad move? No, probably not. And no. Exactly. Exactly. And it's because in the insurance context, there is the risk that the company goes under, right? There is an additional risk beyond the holdings, as it were. And so as an investor, um, and, and there are a variety of these other contexts where that type of seemingly equivalent diversification is actually could actually be a good thing. It's because the diversification only covers one problem, one type of risk. And as an investor looking at simple single funds, look, we know in the industry that the company isn't going to go under, the company offering that fund. Or if, even if it did, it's, that's probably not your, biggest, that's not your biggest threat. The real diversification is market diversification, and you're being well covered there. But the investor is still using this smart shortcut, again, in the wrong context. So I have sympathy for that. I, I think that, that, makes, that makes sense to me. And we see it in the US with people who have invested in more than one target date fund, a fund that glides over time uh, based on their age. Like, okay, I'd like the one that's for 2030 and the one for 2040. Right. Like, no, 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 that, that, that shouldn't be. That should, that's, we designed these so you have a single thing. But we see the same thing. And it's not foolish people. It's, it's people who are using the wrong rule. Yeah, I was going to say applying an otherwise good rule in the wrong context. Indeed, indeed. And I think just that slight shift to an, to an insurance context shows us, hey, this actually could be a very smart thing to do. One of the issues that you discussed in that same paper about the choices was that the finance industry lately has been trying to appease both consumers and regulators by increasing disclosure about fees, right? So there right. tend to be a little bit, it tends to be easier to discover the cost of funds now than it did a few years ago, at least in Canada, probably in the US as well. But your research suggests that, you know, fee disclosure 
is not likely to help much. I mean, your whole study specifically disclosed the fees very openly, and people still made you know less than optimal decisions. So you had suggested that you know the industry can, and I'll use your term to curate options to weed out higher priced but otherwise similar funds. The question arises, though, why would the investment industry do that when it's in exactly against their best interest to? I mean, that role has to come from somewhere else, does it not? So I think there are two solutions to this problem. The one is, is curating options, right? And at least in the US, where most people have saved, uh, again, there, there's undersaving overall, but where most people have saved is through their retirement plans. And those, there is a fiduciary who is saying, who is curating those options. And so this is a message to those plan sponsors, to the advisors that serve the serve the plan sponsors, to the record keepers, et cetera, and saying, hey, what you put on that menu matters. And so there, I think in, uh, incentives are, are well aligned. Um, and that's, and that's a good thing. In other contexts, no, I, I think even where there isn't a fiduciary relationship, um, many non-fiduciary advisors still want to help their clients, right? And they say, hey, how can I pick these options? Where an individual is choosing among the broad range themselves and they, there, isn't through, there isn't through a retirement plan, it isn't through an advisor. Well, yes, you might have a, you still can have a problem there, but that's, at least in the US, that's a much smaller universe. That's solution number one. Solution number two, uh, to this problem has to do with how we think about those fees. So our study looked at naive diversification and looked at constraining choice. At the same time that our paper came out, a very similar study so, or addressing the same problem came out from the FCA of, uh, of the United Kingdom. So uh, they're, they're, they're regulator. It's a great group of folks. And they studied also this problem of um, – how much people paid attention to fees of otherwise similar products. And what they found is that um, their intervention, instead of constraining choice, was to put a big honking warning sign on the fees. So they did a pop-up. They did – I think they had a big red arrow, right? They had a lot of additional visual cues to help people focus at the moment of decision. And they found that that had a similar lift. Um, similar, similar effect to ours. So we now have two different sh um, ways shown in the field to work. One is focusing attention by constraining options or focusing attention by really forcing people to pay attention to it at the moment when they're going to make a trade. Both of those can be effective. Now, the challenge is you can't force people to attend to everything. And so there's only so far you can get with honestly either one of these either one of these techniques. And I look for a combination of the two to help investors focus on fees when it makes sense. All right. This kind of uh, segues nicely into the last uh, issue that I wanted to talk to you about, because as you said, we can't always expect investors to be attuned to all of these subtleties and um, you know, to make conscious decisions in their best interest all of the time. So one of the ways we can improve their plight is to kind of harness some of these tendencies and use them in positive ways. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Now, you have developed some expertise in how to design products that can help people change their habits in positive ways. These didn't necessarily have a financial implication, although in some ways they did. So I'm wondering if you can discuss a little bit about that work and then discuss maybe some ways we can design financial products or services that help us become better savers and better investors without actually consciously trying to do so. Sure. So we've done a variety of different work at Morningstar and, and previous companies. Um, 
some of the some of the the techniques that I find are particularly interesting. We've the team is uh, my team has just done some wonderful wonderful work. Um, one from uh, from Sarah Newcomb. So um, when people budget and they forecast for the future, right? They think, okay, this is what I need to spend. This is what I can save. Let's plot that out and what I'll have. The problem is we're just really bad at forecasting what are known as irregular expenses. Now, for some people, those are shopping splurges. For some people, that's buying a car, right? And or for some others, actually, it's, uh, it's dental work. These things that don't occur every month, we don't budget for properly. And so what Sarah's done is developed a new tool where it shows the, well, the more realistic behavioral budget. You said you were going to do this. This is what actually happened. Let's assume that you're just as imperfect in the future as you are today, i.e. just like everybody else in the world, and this is your more realistic budget of what's likely to actually happen. That's a great tool that we're putting into our, um, our new financial planning package called GoalBridge. We have, um, we have a tool for helping people elicit their goals. So uh, whether it's an individual or an advisor working with their client, what you find is that if you simply ask somebody what are their long-term financial goals, they'll give you an answer. It's just not necessarily the full picture. Um, we have, a, we have a, a research paper, a worksheet, and a, a tool we're working on which helps solve that problem where you ask people what their goals are, right? Because there's often something top of mind that's very important to them. And then you give them a list of common goals that other people have. And what we find is that, well, we just, we're just not always thinking about all the facets of our lives, right? We may be thinking about our kids, but we're not thinking about our parents that we need to take care of in, in our, right? As we approach retirement, our charitable goals, our, um, uh, our bequest, all the other things that we may care about. And so this, what's called a master list, can help prompt people to do that. These are other ways that, again, people have limited attention. You can help work around that. Um, the budgeting issue. People have a limited ability to forecast. You can work around that and, and use that desire to do better and help people execute on it, right, to close that intention action gap. Those are a few examples. I can go on for many more if you'd like. Yeah, and in the meantime, I think what, what really helps all of us is just to kind of understand these biases a little bit more, be able to identify them uh, in ourselves as well as others, and it helps all of us become better investors. So thanks for taking the time to explain your research, and thanks for coming on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's time now for an installment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from listeners and blog readers. Now, this month's question is one that I've received in various forms. In this case, it comes from Carol, who writes, I've read a lot about the single ETF portfolios, but I'm still trying to decide whether there's any advantage to holding the more traditional multi-ETF portfolio with separate funds for bonds, Canadian stocks, and foreign stocks. And does the answer change if we're talking about a TFSA, RRSP, or non-registered account? For the last few years, the model ETF portfolios on CanadianCouchPotato.com have included three funds, one for bonds, one for Canadian equities, and one for foreign equities, including U.S., international, and emerging markets. Since the launch of the one-fund portfolios by Vanguard, iShares, and BMO in the last year and a half, many readers have asked about the relative benefits of using a multi-ETF portfolio compared with one of these one-ticket alternatives. Well, the short answer is that the multi-ETF portfolio is a bit cheaper and it's a bit more flexible. For example, if you want to tweak the asset mix a little or if you want to hold bonds in your RSP and equities in your TFSA. 
In fact, if you go a level deeper, you can lower the cost and increase the tax efficiency of your portfolio by adopting a five ETF portfolio, like those designed by my colleague Justin Bender, which are available on his website, CanadianPortfolioManagerBlog.com. Now, Justin offers different versions for TFSAs, RRSPs, and non-registered accounts. The RSP portfolio uses three U.S.-listed ETFs for foreign equities to reduce both management fees and foreign withholding taxes on dividends. And for non-registered accounts, he substitutes the more tax-efficient BMO Discount Bond Index ETF, with the ticker ZDB, in place of the traditional bond fund in my model portfolios. Now, both Justin and I have received a number of questions from readers like Carol regarding the pros and cons of these alternatives. Now, there's no question that the five ETF portfolio carries lower costs and lower foreign withholding taxes than the simple one fund solution. But how large are those differences? And what are the trade-offs that you would need to accept if you decide to go with the more complex portfolio with five moving parts? Now, it's not possible to quantify these trade-offs precisely. They're going to vary among individuals. Among other things, they're going to depend on the frequency and the amount of your contributions, which will affect the amount of trading that you do. It will also depend on which brokerage you use and therefore the amount that you pay in trading commissions. The size of your portfolio is going to matter a lot too, as well as the asset allocation and your individual tax bracket. Finally, there's the behavioral aspect to consider. Are you likely to tinker with your multi-ETF portfolio? Will you procrastinate when it comes time to rebalance? And so on. These are real concerns, but they're difficult or even impossible to measure. But that said, we can at least make an attempt to quantify the differences in management expense ratio, or MER, and foreign withholding taxes, since keeping these to a minimum seems to be the motivation behind most investors who are attracted to the multi-ETF option. And then we can consider some of the specific challenges that you'll face if you adopt the five ETF portfolio, because more complexity in a portfolio typically leads to more frequent and larger mistakes, and these can undermine any theoretical fee or tax advantage. So hopefully this analysis will give you some context for deciding whether to accept the trade-offs. Okay, let's work through an example. And here again, we'll rely on Justin's analysis. On his website, Justin has a downloadable calculator that estimates the amount of foreign withholding taxes payable by investors holding various funds in different account types. So for instance, if you use a Canadian listed ETF to hold US stocks in your RRSP, the drag from foreign withholding taxes is about 0.3% or 30 basis points. If you use a US-listed ETF instead, you're exempt from these withholding taxes. Now, the calculator also includes each fund's MER, so we can add these two numbers together, fees plus foreign withholding taxes, to get a good estimate of the total cost of each fund in each account type. For this example, we'll assume that the investor wants a classic balanced portfolio of 40% bonds and 60% stocks, which is the asset mix used in the iShares Core Balanced ETF portfolio, with the ticker symbol XBAL. We'll compare this one ETF solution to the five ETF alternative using the same asset allocation in XBAL. Now, I will note that XBAL has some US bonds in the mix, but this won't have any meaningful impact. I'm also going to assume that the investor is holding all of the asset classes in each account. Now, in theory, of course, the multi-ETF portfolio would allow you to select the most tax-efficient account for each asset class, but that adds a whole extra layer of complexity. So for now, let's just consider this more simple scenario. 
Carol asked whether the decision to use a one-fund portfolio changes depending on the account type, and as we're about to see, the answer is yes. So here are the results, and remember, in each case, the cost I'm quoting includes both MER and foreign withholding taxes. In a TFSA, the 5 ETF portfolio has a total cost of 0.25%, while the XBAL option costs 0.36% for a difference of 11 basis points. In an RRSP, the 5 ETF portfolio is super cheap at 0.12%, while XBAL's total cost again is 0.36%, so here we have a difference of 24 basis points. And finally, in non-registered accounts, we have 0.11% for the 5 ETFs and 0.22% for the single ETF alternative. Now, Justin has also estimated that the tax advantage of using the BMO discount bond ETF would offer an additional benefit of 0.05% for investors in the highest tax bracket. So let's say that using XBAL would carry an additional cost of 16 basis points. Now we have a basis for quantifying the difference between these two options. So you can estimate these costs in real dollars. Remember that one basis point, or one one-hundredth of a percent, is $1 per year on every $10,000 invested. That means for TFSAs, the one ETF option will cost you less than a dollar a month for every $10,000 in the account. In an RRSP, the difference is more than twice as much, $2 a month on every $10,000 invested. And for non-registered accounts, the extra cost falls somewhere in the middle at $1.33 a month per $10,000. So if you have $100,000 invested, we're looking at about $10 to $24 a month in additional costs, which is definitely not nothing. But the part that many people gloss over when making these comparisons is that MER and foreign withholding taxes are not the only costs to consider here. We also need to factor in the commissions to buy and sell the ETFs, unless your accounts are at a brokerage such as Questrade that allows free ETF purchases. Although even here, there are costs to sell the ETFs, which you may need to do when rebalancing. Obviously, the five ETF option will require far more trading than the one ETF alternative, and every $10 trade is gonna close that cost gap between the two options. In an RRSP, the cost and the tax benefits of the five ETFs are larger, but so too are the transaction costs. Holding US-listed ETFs in an RRSP means that you need to either accept your brokerage's inevitably terrible currency conversion rate, or you'll need to do Norbert's gambit to convert your loonies to US dollars. Now, this technique can dramatically lower the cost of currency exchange, but it's not free, and it can be tricky and time-consuming. We also need to consider the significantly greater complexity that comes with all the rebalancing when you hold US-listed ETFs in an RRSP. When you set up your spreadsheet, and you will need a spreadsheet, by the way, you will need to convert the US dollar values of those ETFs to Canadian dollars before you know whether any of the foreign equity holdings are off target. In a non-registered account, your record keeping will certainly be easier if you're using only one ETF. But moreover, you need to consider taxes as well. Rebalancing in a taxable account will often mean selling holdings that have gone up in value, which will mean realizing capital gains. Now, we can't know this yet because the funds are so new, but my guess is that the one ETF portfolios will be able to stay on target by rebalancing with new money flowing into the funds, which means not only will they do all the work for you, they probably won't distribute a lot of taxable gains due to rebalancing. So that's another potential benefit of the one fund option. 
We haven't even touched on the behavioral benefits of using a one-fund solution, which are pretty hard to quantify but can be enormous. I mean, they free you from having to rebalance, they reduce your ability to tinker with your asset mix, and they keep your focus on the portfolio's bottom line returns rather than the performance of the individual components. We've covered a lot of ground here, but let me leave Carol and other listeners with some general advice. First, if all of your investments are currently in a TFSA, a one ETF solution is almost certainly preferable to a multi-fund portfolio. One of the reasons is that the multi-ETF portfolio offers no advantage from lower foreign withholding taxes. The only potential savings is from the slightly lower MERs. The other reason is that most TFSAs are relatively small. Very few people have accounts that are into six figures, and your contribution limit is modest at only $6,000 annually, which isn't even enough to make more than a couple of efficient trades at most brokerages. So even if you manage a multi-ETF TFSA perfectly, your annual savings may not amount to much more than the cost of a pizza with three toppings. Second, if most of your portfolio is in an RRSP, the argument for using multiple funds, including US-listed ETFs, is much stronger. But again, consider the size of the account. You probably need at least $50,000 or so in foreign equities before it's worth it. And even then, you might consider using a fund such as the Vanguard Total World Stock ETF, with the ticker VT, which holds US, international, and emerging markets in a single product, with an annual fee of just 0.09%. Compared with using three individual ETFs for foreign equities, this will significantly reduce your trading costs and make rebalancing much easier while still allowing you to remain exempt from U.S. foreign withholding taxes. Finally, if you have a large portfolio with a maxed out TFSA, a maxed out RRSP, and a significant amount in a taxable account, well, now it's definitely worth considering the multi-ETF strategy. At this point, the potential fee and tax savings really are significant, and they're likely worth the additional effort. But even then, if you're a DIY investor and you decide you're comfortable accepting some additional cost for convenience and stress reduction, don't let anyone try to talk you out of it. As I've tried to argue, mistakes and neglect might prevent you from enjoying any real savings from the ostensibly cheaper option. And besides, we pay more for convenience in almost every other aspect of our lives, whether it's food, transportation, or domestic chores. If you decide to pay a few hundred dollars more in investing costs and reduce your spending in some other aspect of your life, well, you'll end up in the same place. At the end of the day, Carol, it's up to you and every other investor to determine how much they're willing to pay for convenience and peace of mind and how much additional complexity that they're willing to accept in order to enjoy those savings. And that's going to do it for another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. Amanda's enjoying a well-deserved vacation, but she'll be back with us in the next episode. Until then, thanks as always to Nick Jaworski and Vanessa Egan for their amazing production work and to you for listening. We'll see you next time.